Thank you for downloading and listening to the Briam Bible Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Briam Bible Church is located in Shoreline, Washington, morning worship at 11, and many more events throughout the week. For more information, please visit our website at www.bereanshoreline.org. Thank you so much for joining us for worship. And while they're heading out, uh, I just want to say that when I first came up here a couple months ago to give announcements, I mispronounced the name of a lake. Do, do any of you remember what the name of that lake was? What's that? Sammamish. Okay. Well, thank you for pronouncing it for me. I didn't have to this time. But um, it, it's not as bad as, you know, Puyallup or something like that. Did I say that right? Okay, good. Um, but I want to challenge you all to say some names of towns in my home state, Wisconsin. So here's the, there's the first one. Ashwabanon, good, you got it. That, that one, that's an easy one. Let's move on to a more difficult one. Yes, that's right. Point it back this way because the projector's over there. What about that one? <laughs> uh, there's like, there's four too many O's in that word right there. It's Oconomowoc. And how about this one? <laughs> Try that again. Wayawega? Well, Wayawega. Yeah. So, don't don't ask me about the names. Ask the natives. You know, they're the ones that came up with that. But <laughs> so anyway, um, <clears throat> so go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to First John, chapter three. First John chapter 3. So, First John is the fifth last book in the Bible. You've got First John, Second John, Third John, Jude, and Revelation. So it's very near the end of the Bible. And if you don't have a Bible with you, we have some in the pews that you can use. So I'm a science guy, okay? I love learning new facts about science. And I had a friend in high school who, well, he's, now he's going to be a Catholic priest. But at the time, he wanted to be an engineer, and he sat me down and he asked me this question. He's one of the most intelligent, most intellectual people that I've ever met in my life. And this is in high school. So he sits me down and he asks me this question. He says, what is cold? And I thought for a minute, what is cold? Well, uh, the three-foot-long icicle hanging off of my house right now, that's pretty cold. <laughs> uh, he, he, no, he's like, no, I want a definition of cold. How do you define cold? And... He stumped me. I had no idea. And um, he said, cold is the absence of heat. So those of you who are science people, you probably already knew that. And for some of you, it may have just blown your minds completely. That cold isn't an energy even in and of itself. It's a lack of heat energy. <clears throat> so then I said, okay. Then what is darkness? It's a lack, it's an absence of heat, or of, of light, sorry, it's an absence of light. What is hate? Is hate, is, is hate the absence of love? I'm not, I'm not gonna answer that question. Uh, we experience cold, and we experience darkness. 
Last weekend, I went with the senior high youth group to Mount St. Helens on a camping and hiking trip. And one of the places we visited was called the Ape Caves. How many of you have been to the Ape Caves? Wow, that's quite a few. It was my first time going to the Ape Caves, and I thought it was really cool. Pitch black. You can't see anything in there if you didn't have a flashlight. And as we continued walking through the Ape Caves, it got colder and colder as well, because not only was there an absence of light from the sun, but there was also an absence of heat from the sun. So we experience cold and we experience dark all the time. And we also experience hate. Okay, think of uh, you know the recent events in Charlottesville. What kind of hate would cause a person to get in their car, drive into a busy mall space and run over people? Or I think of North Korea, the, the political and the religious persecution that is happening there uh, for anyone who doesn't agree with what the leadership is doing. What about black supremacy groups or white supremacy groups? The, the, the beatings and the burnings and the murders that take place. What about sex trafficking? You know, taking these, these girls and forcing them to do things against their consent and scaring the idea of escape out of them. Think of suicide bombings, okay. S- trying to terrorize another group of people or another country in order to try to control them. And I could go on and on about different examples of hate that we find in the world today. It's, this world is full of all three. It's full of cold, it's full of darkness, and it's full of hate. Is cold bad? No. No, cold isn't bad. In fact, it's not, as a thing, it doesn't even exist. It's just the absence of heat. Is darkness bad? No. As a thing, it doesn't exist. It's the absence of light. Instead, they, they are effects, cold and darkness are effects that are created by the absence of something else. Is hate the same way, though? Is hate bad? Yes, of course hate's bad, Sean, come on. But the reason we see so much of it, just like the cold and the darkness, is because there's an absence of something else. Something is missing. Something is desperately wrong with the way the world is right now. But let's forget about the world. Let's forget about the world's systems for a second. And let's think about just ourselves, okay? If you and I look honestly at ourselves, we'll find that there is a big problem as well. You and I experience hate in our, our thoughts, our desires, our words, and our actions all the time. But for the purpose of this message, I want to go ahead and give us a working definition of hate, okay? So, hate is a disposition, uh, having a disposition toward someone that God would not have. Hate is having a disposition toward someone that God would not have. So, a natural result of hate would be something like impatience, okay? You're, You're in the grocery store, and you're, you're in the checkout line, and there's someone ahead of you that's being slow, or you're driving down the expressway, and there's someone in front of you who's not going as fast as you'd like them to go. I and mean, we've all experienced that, right? <laughs> um, the idea in impatience is that my time 
is more important than your time. And therefore, I am more important than you. That's, 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 this, and that's not a view that God has. That's not a disposition that God has toward anyone. He doesn't think that I'm more important than anyone else. Another natural result of hate is judgment based on looks. So we may see a person and we think, wow, they must not be a very good person you know, because they're dressed weird or you know, they put weird things on their body. Or, you know, it's, that's a judgment based on looks. Another natural result of hate, and this is something that I find myself dealing with personally, is apathy and complacency in my relationships. You know, like that, what I am doing now in my relationships with other people is good enough. Like, good enough is good enough. Even though I'm not expending any energy to have this friendship. So that's a working definition of hate for the purpose of this message. Having a disposition towards someone that God doesn't have. So a definition of love would be having a disposition towards someone that God would have. And the natural result of this love is a patience. Um, I think of Second Peter 3.9. He is patient with you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know, and thinking about if God can be patient with your sin and with my sin, he, I certainly can be patient with someone in the checkout line or on the expressway. Another natural result of love is a judgment based on the truth. <clears throat> okay, I think of in the book of 1 Samuel, the prophet Samuel is given a directive by God. He says, he, he's told to go find a king to replace the current king, Saul. And so God leads him to this man named Jacob. And so Jacob brings all of his sons out to the prophet Samuel. And so he marches them across. And Samuel looks at them and says, wow, they have a lot of good qualities. But God says, no. So he moves on to the next person. God says, no. He moves on to the next person. God says, no. And what does God tell him? He says, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So, a judgment based on the truth is a judgment based off of a person's thoughts and their intentions, not what they look like. Another natural definition of love, and I'd say this is the pinnacle of what love is, is sacrifice. Think of the verse that many of us know this verse, John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. So giving is a natural result of love. God loves us so much that he's willing to give the most important thing to him, his very son, Jesus Christ, on our behalf. That's love. It's it's seeing so much value in another person that you are willing to give of your own resources, your own time, your own energy uh, in order to benefit that person. And even if you lose your own security or you lose your own comfort or you lose your own assets, and even if they don't deserve it, that's the pinnacle of what love is. And God demonstrates that love for us in his son Jesus Christ and what he did. Now, that's a good definition of love. But uh, so often we look at that definition of love and we measure it against what we feel 
uh, what we think, what we do, and what we say on a daily basis, and there's no comparison. Like, let's be honest with ourselves. There's no comparison. We absolutely do not show that kind of love on a consistent basis. And the question uh, I will answer uh, this morning is, how do we as believers live in a world with so much hate, that even more so, how do we live this, world, this life that we claim to be transformative of Christ, and yet at the same time we curse those around us with the, with the thoughts uh, and the, the hate that we find from time to time, even within ourselves? How do we make love possible in our lives and in the lives of those around us, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ? The Holy Spirit, through influencing the Apostle John, is going to help us understand this. So I'm going to read from 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 11. 1 John 3, 11. For this is the message you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. So, so Cain is one of the first people to be born on the earth, okay? And he's got his brother Abel. The, both of them offer their own sacrifices to God, but God accepts Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's. Abel's sacrifice was given out of a pure heart. Cain's was not given out of a pure heart. And so God accepts Abel's. And Cain, out of rage and out of hatred, murders his brother because he was jealous. The first murder that ever takes place on the earth. So he says, Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. And anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Those are powerful words. So when you and I come to believe in the name and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we, we pass from death to life. We, 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 we receive a new life. <clears throat> and when that happens, there is something inside of you and me that drastically changes At the core of our being, something drastically changes when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And John understands, and this is something we need to understand about the Apostle John, okay? So he wrote five books in the New Testament, the Gospel of John, the three epistles, this is the first epistle we're reading from, and the book of Revelation. And from everything that the Apostle John wrote in the New Testament, we we can discover... John's view of life. And one of the most important views that he has of life is that life is lived from the inside out. This is the theme that we, that we gain from studying all of John's writings, that life is lived from the inside out. You find it most prominently in his gospel and in this first epistle. 
loving, so life is lived from the inside out. Loving each other, like loving fellow believers, shows that you have passed from death to life. Okay? And that you abide in this new life. In the Apostle John's black and white world, therefore, if you do not love your brothers, you haven't passed from death to life. You are abiding in death. John has a very black and white view of, of the world and, and, and of especially of believers and how they act in the world. So I'm going to read verse 16 now. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, How can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Because as John says, life is lived from the inside out, what you and I do reflects who you and I are on the inside. What you and I do reflects who you and I are on the inside. More specifically, it is what we do, not what we say, that reveals who we are on the inside. It is what we do, not what we say, that reveals who we are on the inside. Notice I said it reveals who we are on the inside. I didn't say it determines who we are on the inside. That's not John's view of life. According to John, what you do does not determine who you are. Who you are determines what you do. Take a lion, for example, okay? So a lion is one of the most wild creatures on the planet. But lions have been tamed. Okay, a, a lion has been trained to not bite the head off of a person. Okay, It's been trained to uh, uh, modify its behavior so that it can survive, so that it can receive rewards from its trainer, and so that it can continue to live and you know do what it does, reproduce or whatever. <clears throat> Uh, it modifies its behavior. But does that mean that the wild left the animal? No, the animal is wild by nature. At its core, it is wild. Taming only controls the wild that is inside. Taming only controls the wild that is inside. And the same is true of us. Millennia of human experience has shown us that behavior modification does not change our core of who we are on the inside. John is saying that there is only one thing that can change the core of who we are. Jesus. And when Jesus abides in us, we show it to our brothers by our actions. Not by our words, as it says in verse 18. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. The reason he says that is because words can very easily create a facade. It can create a mask. It can create something that is fake uh, surrounding us. But action reveals the true nature of, of a person. And the first chapter of this, of this epistle actually addresses this as well. When it says, if we claim to have fellowship with God and while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Verse 19, this is how we know that we belong to the truth 
and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, meaning if we have a guilty conscience, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Verse 21, dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, meaning if we have a pure conscience or clean conscience, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know by the spirit he gave us. So in order to get rid of this guilty conscience because of maybe because of the love that we have not shown to our brothers and sisters, we must simply do it. That's what John's saying. We must simply do it. Just simply love our brothers and sisters. Simply lay down our lives for them. Simply sacrifice for them. Sounds simple enough, right? Right? Until we forget again. I mean, think about this. Until we, why, why is it so hard to show love? I mean, real love to one another and remember to do it consistently, on a consistent basis without forgetting. What I want to pose to you is that the reason it is hard is because of what we are abiding in. The reason it is hard is because we are not abiding in God's love. So it's a simple con- concept. So how, how then do we abide? What does abiding look like? And the key to making love possible is this word that John uses quite frequently, actually. It's this word, abide. The Greek word, meno. M-E-N omega. Okay. Just, they're, not, they're not Greek, uh, they're not English uh, characters. It means to stay or to remain or to live or to dwell. Abide. And it's interesting, of the 112 passages in the New Testament in which this word is found, 66, so over half of them, are used in John's writing. So this is a very important word in John's vocabulary, this word abide. Now, I've been reading out of the New International Version, but the, the version that I study most from is the, the ESV, the English Standard Version. And if you, if you have it, you may notice this, that the word abide, actually, in this passage we've just read over, appears often. And I'm going to go through and I'm going to translate the words that appear in the ESV as abide, um, but appear in NIV as a different word. They're the same Greek word, meno. They're the same Greek words, the same understanding. I'm going to translate them into abide. So I'm going to read verse 14. Anyone who does not love abides in death. Verse 15. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Verse 17. How can the love of God abide in that person? Verse 24. The one who keeps God's commands abides in him and he abides in them. And this is how we know that he abides in us. We know by the spirit he gave us. And even in the next chapter, in verse 12, he says, No one has ever seen God. 
But if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is made complete. This is how we know that we abide in him and he abides in us. He has given us of his spirit. Verse 15. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in them and they abide in God. Verse 16. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in them. That's a lot of abides right there. So John uses this word most often to describe an inward, enduring, personal communion with God. Uh, With God, with Jesus, with Jesus and God, with God and Jesus, with God and us, and Jesus and us. All three of us, there's there's this concept of abiding taking place. An inward, enduring, personal communion. There's another passage in John's Gospel in which this word and uh, similar phrases are also used. So let's turn in our Bibles to John's Gospel, John chapter 6. John chapter 6, and I'm going to start at verse 25. And while you're turning there, I'm going to go ahead and give a context for what's happening here, okay? So Jesus has just finished feeding a crowd of 5,000 men with only five loaves of bread and two fish. It was a miracle. These people, their hunger was just satisfied, and the crowd saw the prosperity that this man, Jesus, could offer and they also saw that this was an amazing sign, meaning that they were like, oh, this is, this is the Messiah, the prophet who's supposed to come. He, he's the one who's supposed to, let's make him king. So they wanted to make him a king. Uh, in verse 15 it says that Jesus, knowing that they wanted to come and make him a king by force, withdrew into a mountain. And then later he crossed the Sea of Galilee to another town called Capernaum. Now, <clears throat> these people, seeing that Jesus had disappeared and seeing that boats had disappeared because his disciples had gotten into the boats and crossed the lake, they decided they were going to cross the lake too. So they crossed over the lake in a bunch of boats. Imagine this, 5,000, now probably not all 5,000 went in the boats to cross. That's, that's quite a crowd right there. But a lot of them got into the boats and crossed the lake uh, to go find Jesus. And they find him on the other side. Now they had Two reasons for doing this, for pursuing Jesus. One, and the text is explicit about this, they wanted to make him king. And two, they also wanted to have their needs met by this man who could feed them with so little. So if you're doing any study of the New Testament uh, of the first century, something you need to understand about this, uh, this culture is that there is no middle class. You and I are used to talking about a middle class all the time. It's probably the one of the classes that we refer to the most often in our conversations. But in Jesus' day in Palestine, there was no middle class. You were either rich or you were poor. There's no middle ground. And Jesus spent a lot of his time with the poor because there were a lot more of them. And he also understood that they had a need because they identified most closely with the physical phenomenon of hunger. They identified with the 
the pain of not having enough. Not having enough money, not having enough food, not having enough crops. They identified very closely with their need. They understood what their need was. The rich didn't understand what their need was because they thought they had everything. But Jesus spent the time with the, the poor because he knew that he could tell them, look, these things that you think you need, like this money, this power, this, this influence, this food, you don't really need it as much as you think you do. I know what you truly need, and it's me. So and th- this is also something we need to understand about Jesus' ministry. So whenever you're reading about Jesus and his, his teachings, especially, sometimes his parables and his miracles, Jesus is always trying to take their incorrect view of the world or of themselves, of life, and realign it with God's view of the world or of themselves or of their priorities. So they were looking for someone who they thought would keep their physical hunger away because he had just fed them food, real food. And they also thought that he was going to give them peace by becoming their king and conquering the oppressive Roman Empire who had taken over control. That's what they thought he would do. That's what they thought the Messiah was supposed to do. He was supposed to come as a conquering king and remove uh, foreigners from the land and set up his kingdom. So this is what they were expecting. They're expecting that, but more than that, they were also expecting to be fed. And so I'm going to read in verse 25. They come to him, and when they find him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Verse 26. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you were looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate your loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Verse 27. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. So this word endures is the same word John has been using in our previous passage. Uh, it's, it's the word Abide. And Jesus is saying that he is the enduring food. He is the abiding food. He is the living food. But they didn't understand what he was saying. They're, they're still thinking, he satisfied our hunger. We want more. Right? Because <laughs> he just satisfied our hunger. He just performed this big miracle and, and fed a bunch of us. We want more of that. But it sounds like he's saying we have to work for it. We have to work for this food. This living food. Uh, so they ask him, in verse 28, Then they ask him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, well then, what sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven. So they're still thinking, food! Okay, He satisfied our hunger temporarily, but it sounds like he's offering us more than that. He's offering us food that will satisfy us, not temporarily, but permanently. And since we know that 
The need for food is something that we identify very closely with on a daily basis. We, we want that, so we don't have to worry about it anymore. It'll cause us to never thirst again, to, to never hunger again. In verse 32, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. We want it all the time. So Jesus is like, you you guys aren't getting it. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. You see, you guys think that this bread you bake here on earth is going to satisfy you, but I want to give you my flesh. I want to give you my very body so that you will truly experience true life that will continue into eternity. Uh, But only when you come to me and believe that I came from God the Father. There are are plenty of things uh, in life that we can abide in that we can try to seek our satisfaction and that we can try to fulfill our needs and find life in. Power. Popularity. Money. A good reputation. Or anything our culture tells us is valuable and has priority in our life. See, these things, these things can bring us satisfaction. I'm not denying that. These things can bring us satisfaction. But we soon realize that we have to keep going back again and again to maintain the same level of satisfaction in those things. Let's take money, for example. Okay, You have to keep making the same amount of money to maintain the same level of satisfaction. Or take a good reputation. Okay, You have to keep doing the right thing. You have to keep being good so people see you and people think highly of you because then you're satisfied. And if you and you got to make sure that you don't do anything wrong because if you do something wrong that means lowered reputation that means bad reputation that means lowered level of satisfaction But Jesus is saying that only he satisfies permanently the bread from heaven that does not perish And so tying this back to John's words in 1st John uh same author same subject. He's basically saying that to abide in God is to love, or to abide in God and his love is to find satisfaction in Jesus alone. He didn't say read your Bible more. He didn't say pray more. He said find your satisfaction in Jesus alone. This is what makes love possible. Abiding and remaining in God, this word that John uses so frequently. Now, what does this look like? Okay, It looks like two things. One is believing in the one that God has sent, Jesus Christ. Okay, this, is, this, is, this phrase, believing in the one he has sent, is mentioned both in 1 John and in the Gospel of John. The second thing is obeying his teachings. And he says the work of God is this, obeying his commands. The command of God is this, to love your neighbor, or to love your brothers and sisters, which means giving your life for one another. But here's the key. Here, here's the important thing. These two things, 
the believing in the one he has sent and obeying his teachings, those two things come from a sure and secure satisfaction in Jesus alone. That's where those two things come from. And we've got to be desperate for something like that. So are, are we desperate to see things in the world change? Like, you know, sex trafficking or North Korea or ISIS or uh, racial prejudice? I could go on and on. Are we desperate to see things in the world change? Now, ultimately, Jesus is going to make the change himself when he returns, when he permanently returns to set up his kingdom. That's where he's going to make the change. But he also has commanded us to live that life here and now. The extent to which we see a change in the world's lack of love is dependent on how desperate we are to change the lack of love in our own hearts. The extent to which we see change in the world's lack of love is dependent on how desperate we are to see change in our own lack of love. Because that's where we've got to start. We've got to start with ourselves. Uh, We've got to be desperate enough. Uh, This desperation is what Jesus refers to in his his, uh, Sermon on the Mount as a hunger for righteousness. Do, Do we hunger for righteousness enough to abide in God and abide in his love. So in, it, in, in Jesus' first coming, he opens up to all of us the opportunity to deal with what is wrong in the deepest parts of our hearts. Okay? Uh, and the way that we deal with this is by believing that Jesus Christ took my unrighteousness and your unrighteousness, he took our hate, he took our lack of love, and those things are deserving of death. That unrighteousness, that lack of love, that hate is deserving of death, and he places it on himself, and he bears the penalty for those things on himself, which is death, and he dies in our place. And when we believe that Jesus has done this on our behalf, he gives us his righteousness, in place of that. Now the, now the work of co- comes of rejecting uh, the temporary satisfaction that you know power or popularity or money or reputation or anything our culture says or you personally think is valuable or prioritize. Uh, rejecting these things and choosing to be satisfied in Jesus alone. That's where it starts. As John says, life is lived from the inside out. It's got to start from the inside. It's got to start with us. And as we learn to be satisfied in Jesus alone, uh, we will come to abide in him. That's what it means to abide in him, to be satisfied in Jesus alone. Sometimes, and in many cases, in most people's lives, it takes desperation. It takes destitution to get to that point. It takes a hunger. It, it takes a hunger for those things uh, to realize we have a need and Jesus Christ is the only one who can satisfy it permanently. It takes desperation to get to that point. Uh, this abiding will fill our hearts with the love of Jesus Christ and, and will make 
you changed on the inside. And as time goes on, that change will eventually flow out into the words and the interactions that we have with other people. That's how we change the lack of love in surrounding us on a daily basis. Do we want to see that kind of a change take place? In short, it's abiding in God's love. And by abiding, I mean choosing to be satisfied in Jesus alone. Pray with me. Lord, we ask that you, as our Heavenly Father, who has brought us into a new family and we have been adopted as your sons and as your daughters, we pray that your Holy Spirit, who you have given to us, would help us to see our brothers and sisters as that. Brothers and sisters. All of us here who name Jesus Christ as our Savior would see each other as brothers and sisters. And as you say, um, no greater love has anyone but this, that, that a man lay down his life for his brother or for his friend. And so may we, by the power of your Holy Spirit and the change that you have brought permanently in our hearts, at the core of our being, help us to love one another. And this is what is going to change us. And this is what is going to make us the masterpiece that this world sees worth looking at and wanting more of. In Jesus' name, amen.